0: This month we're going to take a little bit more devotional approach to God. We're using Jack Cornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. The ecstasy, of course, being enlightenment, and the laundry, well, being the laundry. We're going to learn quite a few things from Mr. Cornfield this month. Today we're going to learn a little bit about some of the seeds that are planted for us to begin our spiritual journey. Uh, next week, we're going to talk more about the idea of this thing called enlightenment and what that means and how we might set ourselves up to experience more of it. The week after that, we get the laundry. <laughs> the week after that, we talk about how we become spiritual and in the physical world at the same time. How do we experience our enlightenment, our moments of Satori, right in place, right in the jobs that we have, right in the crazy families that we live in, and, and so on. And, and then the the last week we're going to talk more about this idea then of taking our own wisdom, our own spiritualness out into the world uh, as a benefit to the planet. But today I, I do want to start out with this idea of even what is enlightenment and how How do we begin making our spiritual journey? And I think I'm going to start with a Russian Ascended Master talk. Has everyone heard the name Baba Yaga? A few of you do. So uh, I think here in America, the whole idea of the The sage elder woman comes from the folklore hero of Baba Yaga in Russia. Uh, But in Russia, she's a little bit on the ruthless side. And so uh, one might even uh, say that she has the uh, countenance of being sort of of witch-like. Highly highly educated, highly smart, highly spiritually evolved, uh, but also not someone to be messed with, if you know what I mean. And so the story right out of the book goes that Baba Yaga one day let it be known she was willing to take on an apprentice, willing to have someone uh, learn greater spiritual mastery underneath her. And so the word went out, and she got her first person knocking at the door. It was a young woman, and uh, Baba Yaga said, are you on your own errand, or have you been sent by another? And so the young woman thought for a moment, and she said, well... She said, truth to be told, my family has sent me here. They think that I'm too smart and too willful to really fit in very well in the village. And they're hoping that you can teach me some discipline and some greater ways of experience. Well, Baba Yaga looked at her, threw out a curse, and she was sent into the fireplace to just ascend and be done. She was dead. Well, I told you she was a bit ruthless, obviously, the first candidate had answered not correctly the question. All right, a few days later, another knock at her at, at the door of her hut deep in the forest, and Baba Yaga says, "Are you on your own errand, or have you been sent by another?" Well, the young woman said no i 'm here on my own accord. I really want to i 'm seeking the spiritual life. I want to learn." What you have learned to gain power and influence. Baba Yaga, whoosh, into the fire, up the chimney. Another potential apprentice, shall we say, fired. (laughs) That maybe was passing for a joke today. But obviously she had answered incorrectly as well. A few days later, another knock at the door. Baba Yaga asked her question once again. Are you on your own errand or have you been sent by another? And the young woman is very quiet and almost has a puzzled look on her face. She said, well, she said, I'm not sure why I'm here. Why is it that the moon is drawn across the sky every night? I'm meant to be here. And so Baba Yaga had her new apprentice. And so when we think about enlightenment, when we think about the idea of oneness with spirit, or, or even just taking steps along our spiritual path, the story of Baba Yaga reminds us that we may approach this for different reasons. But if we're approaching it for the idea of somehow fixing ourselves, Right? The first young woman that uh, because of her family had come to believe there was something wrong with her and that the spiritual way would fix something that was wrong, that's not the right answer. Similarly, the second young woman that came with the idea of acquiring spiritual mastery and power, this isn't about uh, you know, becoming grander in the world. This isn't about climbing to the highest mountain so that you too can be the yogi position. Um, That's probably more of an egoistic path. The idea of our spiritual path is that we are innately drawn to it. Even as the moon is drawn to pass across the sky every night, that is our spiritual journey. It's a journey that we're all on, and it's a journey that we can bless, we can curse. We can rail against, we can do things to further it, but it is nonetheless our journey to take. As the poet Rumi once said, grapes, grapes are in love with becoming wine. It is that, that moving forward in our spiritual growth that, that draws to us. It's not, a, it's not a task, it's not something we seek, it's something that we become because it is who we are. It is in our nature. And I want to talk a little bit more about some of the seeds, if you will, that are planted already in us that we can begin watering and nurturing if we want to take some intentional steps along this path. Now, uh, Jack Kornfield in the Buddhist tradition, of course, would say, we're all going to be enlightened, right? Maybe not this lifetime, (laughs) maybe not the next lifetime. But enlightenment awaits us. So, in that sense, we're all on the same journey. We will all get there. But maybe we want to do a little more intentional work on enlightenment right now. I think it's time for my true joke. I I know we've already had a laugh, but uh, I want to rely on another folk hero from the Islamic tradition, our friend Mullah Nasruddin, and uh, I I know a lot of you are familiar with him. I love his stories. Uh, So Mullah Nasruddin was walking in the bazaar one day with a large group of people following him. And whatever Nasruddin did, the followers immediately copied. Nasruddin might, for instance, walk a few steps, stop, shake his hands in the air, touch his feet, and jump up yelling, who, who, who. And his followers would also stop and do exactly what he did. Well, one of the merchants who, who knew Nasruddin well quietly asked him, my old friend, what are you doing here? Why are these people following you? Well, said Nasruddin, I've become a great spiritual leader. These are spiritual seekers, and I'm helping them reach enlightenment. Well, my friend, how how do you know when they've reached enlightenment? Well, that's the easy part. Every morning, I just count them. The ones who have left, obviously, they've reached enlightenment. (laughs) So what is this thing called enlightenment? You know, I think we have this picture, similarly to uh, to and Azrudin, that it's something that just happens to us, and then we are forever changed and forever different. And, and I think that's uh, kind of played up by the idea of thinking as, uh, as people who have experienced enlightenment, you know, being in a cave in the the Himalayas or something that, that you know you've once you've become enlightened you basically kind of transcend the human existence and and just live in bliss all the time. Well, one of the things that Jack Cornfield has done, which I love in his book, is he has interviewed all of the living masters in spirituality. So there are articles in there by the Dalai Lama. There are articles in there by many great uh, uh, people of all different traditions too, not just the Buddhists. And they all say the same thing. After the ecstasy is the laundry. It isn't something that you transcend and then you're just there. There are the bright moments, uh, as they would say in that tradition of satori, of enlightenment. There are the, the beautiful senses of oneness and connection and beauty. And you've probably all felt that sometime. Believe it or not, probably everyone here has experienced that touch of enlightenment. But then, most of us, it's fleeting. Most of us don't live there very long. I had the honor myself of meeting the Dalai Lama. Well, well, me and like 7,000 of his closest friends. <laughs> it wasn't a personal audience, but he talked about it as well. Even someone like the Dalai Lama has trouble at the airport. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's still the laundry to be done. And even though he, perhaps more than most people living on the planet today, live in that place of bliss and enlightenment, It isn't something that just happens to you and forever you're in that state of bliss. The reason I'm telling you this is we can begin cultivating those moments. It isn't something that, uh, you know, that we work towards or you follow a certain set of rules or if your altar is set up a certain way, it will happen or, or if you pray a certain way, it will happen. I mean, we have some good ideas for those kinds of things, but if you think there's a recipe for it, oh my gosh, it's, you know, take my foundations class and we'll talk. Because <laughs> there isn't a recipe for it. Each one of us is different. Each one of us is on a different path. But there are some things that we can do to invite those moments. And I want to give you just a, a quick example from my own life. I, I think my first moment of what, what I think of, anyway, as they describe this idea of satori or an enlightened moment, actually happened in ministerial school. I was uh, uh taking my classes down uh in uh uh, uh, San Diego, and outside the campus there at en, uh, Encinitas is a beautiful meditation garden that the Self-Realization Fellowship has. Uh, the SRF has uh, one of uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's original houses overlooking the Pacific there, and they've they've uh, redone it, so it's a, just a beautiful garden. And so some of uh, the ministerial students would go there at lunchtime just to kind of enjoy the garden and eat their lunch, and one day I thought, I would really like to experience this more just by myself and maybe at sunset. And so I went down there a little bit before they were closing and it was just a a beautiful sunset uh, in the works. It was in the middle of the winter but still warm there. Beautiful sunset. So I'm walking through the garden and it's, it's truly enchanting. I mean they have probably 25 gardeners keeping this space look pristine and beautiful with flowers and but it wasn't then. And so I get to a bench and I sit and I'm looking out at just the magnificence of the Pacific Ocean and the, the cliff and the sand below. There's still surfers out in the twilight. Uh, uh, you could not imagine I mean, it was picture postcard kind of thing. But it wasn't then. And so I sat in meditation for about half an hour and really contemplated just the beauty of the place and the peace I was feeling. And it wasn't then. I had my moment of Satori in the car, driving back to the motel. And I have to tell you, I long for moments like that. It was like everyone on the freeway belonged to me. The car was part of me. There was no separation between me and the, the beautiful sunset going on. There was no separation in any sense. I mean, I, I would hate to say I even felt connected to something because that implies that there are two separate things that need to be connected. You know what I mean? It was, it was I and God was everything in that moment. And it was beautiful, and as I drove, I wept a little bit because I knew that it wouldn't last, but I knew it was always available. And so this is enlightenment. It it happens in small little stretches as we go throughout our lives. And we can set some things up to ensure that it happens more frequently. So one of the things that... uh, Uh, jack cornfield does is he talks about the buddha's uh, path to enlightenment and i wanted to share just a little bit of it with you today so uh in the life story of the buddha as prince siddhartha the buddha-to-be was deliberately protected from the problems of the world by his father he was sequestered in beautiful palaces during his early years finally the young prince insisted on going out to see the real world As he rode through his kingdom with the charioturichana, chana, he saw four sights which stunned him deeply and moved him along his path towards enlightenment. First, the Buddha saw a very old person tottering, bent over and frail. Next, he saw a man who was grievously ill being cared for by his friends and family. And finally, on a back street, he actually saw a dead body awaiting burial. Each time he asked his charioteer, To whom do these things happen? Each time, Channa replied, Why, to everyone, my lord. These sights are called the heavenly messengers. For just as they awakened the Buddha, so they remind us all to seek liberation, to seek a spiritual freedom in this life. And so, one of the seeds, if you will, that lead us towards Satori, to lead us towards uh, the more spiritual way, is simply the awareness of tragedy, of misery, of things in the human plane that are not what they are on the spiritual plane. Now you might ask, well, how does this work? Uh, uh, do is it a process of feeling sorry for people then that leads us to a greater awareness and a greater spiritual connection? No, it isn't the idea at all of feeling sorry for people. We're as the the charioteer mentioned, we're all in this same boat. We're all going to experience those things. It is the idea of transcending an over-identification with the flesh that brings us freedom so that we can feel that sense of freedom even when we're not feeling well. We can have that sense of freedom even knowing that we're going to pass on, even knowing that the human form is going to make its transition. So that is one of the seeds that the Buddhists, of course, hold dear to them, the idea of transcending suffering through a greater awareness of our spiritual purity, a greater awareness of our spiritual wholeness, recognizing that in spirit we will live forever and not to worry so much about what's going on in the world. So we do the laundry, but we don't worry about it. We're here to experience the physical life We enjoy it as best we can, and we don't worry about it because it is not the definition of who we are. We are more than that. We are embodied spirit, but foremost, we are spirit. The other thing in the book that Cornfield says... That we can use as that that seed that moves us into enlightenment is the idea of inspiration. And here I would fall back on uh, on someone quite contemporary. Is everyone familiar with Eckhart Tolle and the uh, the the, the um, his writings about the power of now? So his path towards uh, satori, if you will, was inspirational. For three years, his uh, habit every day was to go to the library in the morning and read scripture. And he read Christian scripture, he read uh, Jewish scripture, he read the Bhagavad Gita from the East, he read the, uh, it's like you name it, if it was considered great spiritual writing, that's what he did in the morning. And then in the afternoon and early evening, he would sit in the park and contemplate what he had read. So inspiration and contemplation. That's like all he did for three years. And he had a breakthrough. That too is what uh, Jack Cornfield lays out as a plan. Now, obviously, some people are devoted to a plan and some people are really devoted to a plan. So I'm not suggesting anyone quit their job and uh, sit on a park bench for three years. But the idea of spiritual inspiration being part of it holds true whatever your path is on it is always a great idea to have daily readings and daily meditation and contemplation as part of it even if it's something as simple as reading the science of mind magazine and the the little thought for the day in there and then just sitting in the silence for a bit and internalizing it what does this mean for me how might i apply this in my life you see it's exactly the same thing that toll did but Just a little slower, not quite the level of oomph. And yet, if we're all on that spiritual path, I know it will take us there. The third path, or the third seed, if you will, that leads us into the spiritual path uh, is also mentioned by the Buddha. And so let me read again from Cornfield. He says, The fourth messenger came when he saw a monk standing at the edge of a forest, a hermit, who had devoted a life of simplicity to seek an end to the sorrows of the world. At this sight, the Buddha realized that he too must follow this path, that he must face directly the sorrows of life and attempt to find a way beyond their grasp for everyone. And so the idea of a life of service—you might think of this, if you like, as the sort of Mother, Spirit, uh, Mother Teresa path—the idea of of being in service. That that truly my life is to be here to help others, not not so that I feel better about myself, of course, but to really remove as much suffering from the world as I can. Now, in the Buddha's case, he was talking about, of course, mental suffering—the idea that we overly identify. Um, with the things that go wrong in our lives, as though that defined us. But whether it be mental suffering, whether it be physical suffering, that is the third path. That's the third major way that we can move forward in our spiritual seeking. So, tiny bit of homework. You can guess where this is coming. So, are we agreed that we're all on the spiritual journey? I know some of us are on the fast track. Some of us, you know, this might be our 12th lifetime working on it. I don't know. You've heard about some children that just seem like they were born with an old soul. You know, Some of us maybe have been around long. I don't even know that you have to believe in the idea of reincarnation to know that we're all on a spiritual journey. So your homework this week is, which of those paths pretend that you've showed up at Baba Yaga's hut. (laughs) And her question is, what seed of enlightenment are you wishing to plant at this time? Is it the idea of helping the, the planet through the alleviation of suffering, is it a path of, uh, of wisdom through uh, reading and contemplating a scripture of some kind? Or is it the, the first path that we talked about? That idea of noticing one's own uh, impermanence in the flesh uh, and then moving forward into the idea of the divine spirit just cloaked in a body. So that, that's your homework for this week. Just that idea of putting some purposefulness and some ideology around how am I walking my spiritual path. One of the other things uh, that I love about Jack Kornfeld is uh, he's a Rumi fan, as am I. And so I'd like to close today um, with the Rumi poem that he uh, closes this chapter with. He says, This being human is a guest house, and every morning is a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness. It comes as unexpected visitors. We welcome and we entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice... Meet them at the door laughing if you can. Invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Let us pray. There is one power, one presence, one life, and one goodness. There is only this unity of spirit. And in moments of Satori, I feel it on such, such a powerful level. There is only one, and I'm part of it. As it is true for me and in my moments of awakening, I know it is true for everyone here. Each of us has experienced that unity, that oneness, that purposefulness of being at some times in our lives. And I know for each person here, including myself, that the moments become more frequent that we allow ourselves to, to create an environment where, where we can usher them in more easily, more, more aware of them, right? Living in place, having, having the ecstasy even while we're doing the laundry, understanding that life is full of satori moments, that every moment is a potential enlightening moment if we allow it. And so for this knowledge, I give great thanks. I let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. So glad you were here.